are listening to the Order Transmissions Episode 126. to the Tricorder Transmissions Original Mission. This is episode 126. Tonight we're going to be talking about the animated series episode, The Time Trap. I am Jeff Hewlett, and here along with me for this ride is my co-host on Disco Trek and Shore Leave and managing partner of the Tricorder Transmissions Network, the wonderful Heather Barker is here. I can't believe it's been a year since I talked to you. Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) I talked to you yesterday. (laughs) Well, since I've talked to you about the animated series. Uh, I thought you were going to say we got caught in a time trap. That was good. I'm here all week. Tip your waiters and waitresses. Try the veal. Uh, so uh, we have another guest with us tonight who's been on several of our shows, and I, I have to fall on the sword and say I invited him to come on an animated series episode a year ago, and he's finally here with us tonight, Mr. Carl Wonders. How's it going, Carl? Hey, Jeff. How you doing? Wonderful, man. Thanks for waiting an entire year to join us for this. Well, yeah. I mean, it was pre-STLV last year, and you know now we've made the rounds and had me on a couple other things, but uh, this is what started the whole thing, so... We're fine. I'm glad we're finally getting to do this one. Yeah, and I did. Am I mistaken, or did that come kind of out of the discussion that we had about Cybok on Twitter? The before or after? I I think it was after. Okay. Um, I think that's where we. I think actually that's how I found the network. Um, was oh. our our day long or however long it was, <laughs> uh, defense of Cybok and Star Trek Five, and uh, um, you know. Ever since then, you know, I've been, I found the show and, you know, rest is history, I guess. But, yeah, uh, I think yeah. I, I bond with anyone who will defend Cybok along with me. So the <laughs> <laughs> easy way to become my best friend. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So uh, before we get started, I want to throw out a quick note. It's been a while since we did one of these and uh, we had changed the format of the original mission a few episodes ago. We used to do commentary tracks for every episode, and we have changed the format now. We do a quick synopsis of the episode and do a roundtable discussion uh, between all the guests. So um, we won't be doing a commentary track for this episode. So um, this is going to be just a pretty much straight-up conversation about the time trap. And um, really quickly, we do also have a Patreon page, and you can access that at patreon.com slash transmissions or by visiting our website and clicking on the Patreon link on the right-hand side. If you enjoy anything we do here on the Original Mission or any of our other Tricorder Transmission shows, please consider joining our Patreon family. Uh, Becoming a patron will give you instant access to our unedited episodes right after we record them. So this episode will be on Patreon several days before it actually airs on our network regular. And... um, I want to really quickly also throw out a shout-out to our newest patron, uh, Laura Innes. Uh, I, I Hopefully I can pronounce your Twitter handle right. It is uh, Yuslora underscore Jane. Uh, 
on Twitter. Thanks so much for becoming a Patreon patron of our network. We really, really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, send us a note. Let us know what you think of these shows, and we'd love to talk to you a little bit more. Heather, uh, any thoughts about Patron, our newest patron? Oh, well, she's really cool for supporting us. And I didn't realize who she was, and then I put two and two together and felt kind of dumb. Because normally, when I do our little patron welcome things on the Tricorder Twitter handle, I usually just use their, their Twitter handle and tag them. And I didn't, and I felt bad. So I figured it out, though. I figured it out. Yes, Heather was the sleuth. Every now and then we do get patrons that we don't recognize. Um, And we try to put two and two together and ask across the network and figure out who people are. Um, But that's also kind of fun to get support from people that aren't necessarily our good friends. Yeah. Um, Because then we know we're reaching a wider audience. Um, So we just had our first um, patron roundtable. It was focused on Star Trek Discovery um last last week and that was a lot of fun we're going to be doing more of those and not just for disco trek but um for our other podcast here on the network and we'll have more about that down the road we're still getting everything together tricorder has kind of ballooned we have we have um grown like a pile of tribbles (laughs) (laughs) and the the last six months in a year so um we're getting all that together and we're excited to bring all of that to everyone and always say we don't matter we don't mind if it's it's a dollar or ten dollars you're all the same we appreciate it all just as much and we are forever grateful to all of our patrons and our patreon family for their support 100% agree. And um, just to throw out a quick another note about Patreon, we are working to get our other shows. Uh, Right now we have Disco Trek and Shore Leave that are regularly posted as unedited episodes on our Patreon-only feed. But we recently got Reading Trek on board with that. This episode is going to be on board, so uh, the original mission will now be a part of it. And we're working to get some of our other shows out there early for all of our patrons. So keep an eye on the Patreon feed. If you are a patron, you're going to be getting a lot more content here very, very soon. So thanks again for being our patrons. So we are here to talk about the 12th episode of season one of the animated series, The Time Trap. And really quickly, we've got some stats about this episode. I'll throw out there. It was written by Joyce Perry. Uh, she pitched an idea to Gene Roddenberry about Starfleet and the Klingons having to work together to save their ships and crews. And Jean loved the idea and told her to go for it. And this is her only Star Trek writing credit, although she wrote for other popular shows of the early 70s, such as Ironside, Land of the Lost, Eight is Enough, Fantasy Island, uh, and several, several others. Um, This show uh, originally aired... Oh, crap, the air date disappeared. Oops. Sorry um, about that. I'll November that 24th. Ah, thank you. My, 1973. Thank you, Carl. I've actually, I might leave that in. That was fun. I might leave that okay. in. Um, the, the funny thing about this, the star date that Captain Kirk reads out at the beginning of this episode is 52.2. Uh, later in the episode, it's corrected to 5267.6. But according to the final draft of the script, he was supposed to say 5664.2. 
So a little discrepancy there. 52.2 was a little bit early. Yeah, a little early, yeah. <laughs> for this episode. So it was kind of funny when I went and listened back to this episode. I was like, wait a minute. That doesn't sound right to me. So look that one up. Um, so there's a couple other quick interesting points before we get into the synopsis of this episode. There's um, on the deanimated series shows that we do, there's always that old canon argument that pops up of whether or not the episode is canon or it should be considered canon. But one of the uh, really interesting points that I found when I was watching this and looking up some other information was that the fact that Kor commanded the uh, the Clothos is one of several facts in this episode that later became official canon because it was used in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. So I thought that was an interesting one. Uh, you guys have any thoughts on whether or not um, this episode – I know the only episode is officially canon of, the, of TAS, I believe, is yesteryear, uh, according to the Akudas, but – I think this one may qualify based on that fact alone. Canon Schmanon, I don't care. <laughs> Heather cares not for such things. Yes. No, I, I really don't. Um, it's Star Trek. It's Star Trek. So that's that's all that I matters that to logic. me. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's what I got to say about that. <laughs> Carl, thoughts? No, I agree. I mean, there's there's maybe one or two little things in here that don't quite jive with what we know from other shows but you know if if they picked something up off of the uh the animated series and they ran with it in a later episode i mean they got the holodeck off of the animated series if i'm True. not mistaken so mm -hmm. yep. you know you can borrow from things even if it's not quote unquote canon it's it's still star trek to me so you know i i think that we should have a whole discussion about these klingons because they don't look like klingons they're oh. wearing purple Wait a minute. <laughs> so fun, <laughs> speaking of the Klingon appearance, fun fact, this is the final appearance of smooth-headed Klingons. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So from well, this point Unless forward, you count trouble, Trials and Tribulations, though. Well, that came before this one. Oh, no, wait, but yeah, it's true. No, you're talking about Deep Space yeah. Nine episode. I thought you were yeah. talking about the, the TAS no, one. No, 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 no. Well, yeah, I guess so. That's, yeah. No, I'm, I'm splitting hairs. But, you're splitting hairs, yeah. but yeah. But anyway. So, uh, guys, are we ready to jump into? I'm going to do a quick synopsis. Anything you want to say before I jump into that? Um, I just wanted to ask a quick, another canon-related question. Oh, sure. For you is is, and I can't remember because I've only seen TA or the original series recently with the new effects oh, and everything. Yep. Have we seen the Klingon insignia before this episode? Now, I believe the Klingon insignia was came from the animated series. Okay. Because it's on that, you know, that table and yep. other places. I think it's upside down, but it is. it's still there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I can't remember. Like, I think it's on there in a couple episodes, but with the new effects, I can't remember if it was actually visible in TOS before they redid all this stuff. But just just throwing it out there because it stuck out to me, actually, is like, oh, I don't know if we've seen that before. I don't believe we have. I remember reading a while ago that the, the animated series was the official debut of the Klingon insignia and then of course they retroactively added it back I think in the TOS but if you if you have the blu-rays of the of TOS you can watch the original versions oh that's a good point yeah, of those episodes yeah so you can easily see if it's there or not I mean that may be another mission of mine to go back and watch <laughs> some of the original ones without the new effects yeah added into them so quickly, uh, the synopsis of the story of this episode uh, revolves around the Enterprise and a Klingon ship, the uh, Clothos, being trapped together in a space version of the Bermuda Triangle, uh, aptly named the Delta Triangle, and having to cooperate with each other in order to escape. So the Enterprise is ordered to survey the Delta Triangle, and when they arrive, the Klingons have a trap set up for them 
So a brief battle ensues in the Enterprise, and Commander Kor's ship both enter a time pocket uh, where they find a graveyard of ships that have been there for what seems like centuries, according to the instruments. Uh, they also find that the crews of those stranded ships have formed a peaceful society they call Elysia, uh, ruled by the Elysian High Council, which is made up of some familiar faces from the Trek universe, including Vulcans, Klingons, Endorians, uh, Zinti, uh, Phylosians, the plant beings from the infinite Vulcan, uh, Tellarites, uh, Terrans, and of course, my favorite, the Gorn, makes an appearance again here, his second official appearance. Uh, so both Kirk and Kor uh, attempt individual escapes, but neither one of them are successful. So Spock, of course, saves the day by coming up with an idea to fuse the two ships together and use the power of both to escape the time pocket. So the two crews agree to work together, but of course, the Klingons have a sinister plan in mind to blow up the Enterprise with a device that they will plant inside the ship that will explode once they've returned to their own time. Uh, just as they're attempting to escape, one of the telepathic members of the Elysian Council detects the explosive device aboard the Enterprise. They notify Kirk of the danger, and Spock heroically saves the day by throwing the device that looks like a little tiny pill down a garbage chute that vents into space. So both ships return to the prime timeline where Kor realizes his plan has failed, but still takes full credit for escaping, <laughs> for executing the <laughs> escape plan. Uh, Kirk, in a rare display of, of diplomacy towards the Klingons, lets it go, and everyone goes home safely. So that's a pretty quick synopsis of everything that happens in the episode, but we're going to dive into some interesting points about this one. And, of course, my, my number one topic was the Gorn that I already mentioned, but, <laughs> of course, I would be remiss if I hadn't mentioned that. But there's a, a lot of interesting things that happen in this episode, especially from a continuity perspective. And I think one of the biggest things in my mind is the Elysian Council. Um, I, I'm trying to think of when the last time we saw a mix of alien races like this, and none of them have ever been this big prior to this, but, I mean, a journey to Babel, maybe? Um, was probably the last time we saw this uh, a larger mix of alien races, and of course this one's even bigger, you know, including a cross section of TOS and TAS aliens. Mm -hmm. So I think it's it's a very creative and good use of the animated medium. And since I already mentioned the Gorn, uh, do either one of you have any specific members of the Elysian Council that you wanted to talk about? I, I think they they are very interesting from a a visual standpoint um unfortunately none of them really makes much of an impact at least most of them don't they're just kind of sitting around yeah um i the by one note that i wrote kind of halfway through the episode because they have this council and then all of a sudden this new person that has these telepathic yeah. capabilities i wrote down in my notes because it's a filmation one i've said oh look it's she-ra making a cameo appearance in <laughs> in start in star trek because you can tell that that's basically the the same overall look that that the she-ra character which would come later of course um had so that was the first thing that jumped out at me as far as the council's concerned there was that one character that uh is wearing what looks kind of like a starfleet uniform yeah the human and, yeah and and i think because and i'm jumping around a little bit but they they run across the uss bonaventure as one of the ships that's yeah. stuck there and scotty makes a strange comment about how it's the first ship to be fitted with warp drive, which yeah. we can, we can debate that as Canon. Um, but I think I read somewhere that she's actually supposed to be a member of that crew. Yeah. Um, I had read the same thing. 
Yeah. Um, I noticed. I I know maybe my it was a something my eyes were fooling me, but I was trying to squint at the insignia on her uniform, mm-hmm. and it looks like a star, but in the middle of it, it looks to me like almost like the science insignia. Yeah. I maybe it could be a, a visual a glitch in the in the. The, the print, but it looked to me like there was a, definitely a little circle in the middle of that. That could have been the, the Starfleet science insignia. And she, had a blue like... co- she had a blue collar on too. Maybe that was, you know, I don't know if they were doing the color scheme then, but who knows? I feel bad because I listened to an entire podcast about the bone adventure um, over our friend, Aaron Harvey, that does Saturday morning Trek on Trek FM, which is all about the animated series did an episode where like he and another guy like designed it and kind of talked about like the history of it and everything. And I feel like I should have facts, but since I listened to that <laughs> whole podcast and I don't, um, so that's my short plug for, for Aaron's podcast. Since he did talk about it um, for like two hours or something, I feel like I should, should know more. And, but I listened to it a long time ago. So sorry. Um, I thought that the, the Orion woman was, interesting um because she personality wise like orion women especially are just made to be a very different type of character yeah Mm -hmm. uh and she was uh almost sympathetic and didn't want to you know stop them from from doing what they needed to do um the discussion that she had with what's his face the vulcan whose name got pronounced a hundred different ways. Yeah, Sirius, Sarah Sirius. Sirius. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Sirius, Sirius, et cetera. You know, she, she seemed concerned about the, the two ships and their crews. Um, but of course they had not, there were, they were allowed to do it. They were like, there's nothing, no law that says that they can't try to, to get out and everything. Mm-hmm. So I just, I thought she was an interesting character. And then when she talked to, I think the, the psychic woman was, um, Michelle Nichols, of course, did the voices for both of those characters. And the arrival woman was so sweet because she's like, come back to us. <laughs> like it was, I don't know. It was nice. It was. Uh, and I think that technically that that might have passed the Bechdel Wallace test. So, yay, because they weren't necessarily <laughs> talking about a man. So, woohoo. So, you know, what? I, I, I have a couple other points that I was going to bring up later in the episode, but since uh, we brought up the the Orion and a couple of the other female characters. Uh, this episode is the first one since um, was it Day of the Dove? I think no, not Day of the Dove. What was the? Oh yeah, there was Day of the Dove that had the the female Klingon characters. So this is another episode that has female mm-hmm. Klingons in it. Although um, she appears a, a little bit different uh, than Mara and the other unnamed uh, Klingon female from from Day of the Dove. But I thought it was interesting the the difference in clothing choices for <laughs> the like the Klingon women have full uniforms the the Terran or human has a full uniform but some of the other ones are in essentially Orion and a couple of the other uh, females that are you know there's another unnamed one that looks like she's wearing a clear space helmet but they mm-hmm. they seem to be wearing you know underwear or bathing suits it just seemed like a there was a very big disparity between the uh, the clothing choices for the female characters. I didn't even notice. Sorry. Yeah. I, I got, I, let me go look at a picture. <laughs> I chalked it up to, you know, the artist then trying to mimic what, you know, William Wertheese would have put on 
and, and if they'd actually filmed it live, I can imagine him doing something similar. Yeah, I, I thought mean, that carried over with the Orion, but the yeah. other ones were were interesting choices. I mean, granted, going back through TOS, there were a lot of uh, female outfits that kind of mimicked some of those. But um, yeah, I, I wasn't – it was just something that occurred to me near the end of the episode when I was thinking about um, – the, the appearance of a, a Klingon female in this and then going back and looking at some of the photos that they had from Day of the Dove and realizing that they had, you know, essentially the same type of uniforms uh, in Day of the Dove as the, the male Klingons had. Yeah, there's one in the council that is kind of over more towards the right-hand side when they do the full shot. And she, I, I, it's weird. It looks like she has some kind of almost a clear space helmet on. Yeah, and she has really yeah. big eyes. Yeah. Yeah, she's got on a swimsuit. I, I I don't know. I watched it so many times. I watched it again yesterday, and I kind of zoned out towards the end, <laughs> <laughs> as you do when you've seen it. Um, okay, so there she is, and she's got on – she's got an afro for some reason. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, she's got on a dress, a long sleeve dress, so with a mini skirt. And there's a second female uh, Klingon in this that just gets kind of a – she just gets pictured from kind of like a back in the side. You just see the side of her face during the bar fight scene. So I'm not sure if she's got the same uniform on or not. Yeah, she's not She's not popping up. But hey, it's they're purple, so at least they're the same color. Yes, more of the, um, the, the unfortunate colorblind uh, <laughs> color choices that gave us the pink tribbles. Also gave us purple uniforms for the Klingons, I imagine. Interesting stuff. So really quick, since we already talked about the Bonaventure, let's just really quick go back to that. So uh, the Bonaventure's call sign is NCC-10281, which is a little bit long uh, for a call sign, but it's it's definitely there along the nacelle as you see it. And as Carl mentioned, uh, Scotty says this is the first ship to have warp drive installed, disappeared on its third voyage. And in the script... Uh, it's described as a ship, something like the Enterprise, but smaller, not as graceful and sleek, but clearly powerful. Um, not sure if that came across necessarily in the, the shots of it that we saw, but it definitely looks like an Enterprise that's kind of like squished mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, the saucer's a little <laughs> it's a little stubby looking to me. But yeah, I mean, I can see like what, what they're trying to go for here, but uh, it, it just looks a little like, you know... Like I would draw the Enterprise in a way, if because I'm not that <laughs> not that talented at drawing. Uh, but yeah, it's it's definitely you know sort of like the Enterprise, but not really. It's chubby. Yeah. The 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 engine, the 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 secondary hull on it actually reminds me a little bit more of like the Excelsior from later years. It does. Um, which again is a little strange, but uh, yeah, it is. I thought the oblong saucer section was a strange design choice Mm -hmm. they didn't just shrink the entire disc they kind of compressed it so it was more like an oval shape uh almost like um almost like the enterprise d right yeah obviously we as we said there's more about the bonaventure out there and there's other podcasts about it so we don't necessarily need to uh, belabor these points yeah, no, we're not we're not going to top a two hour podcast focused specifically on that chip. So we'll just refer <laughs> people over there. Yeah, no, we're not we're not knowledgeable <laughs> enough to do that. But um, but I mean, from a ship's perspective, there's a couple of other interesting tidbits, especially with the Enterprise achieving warp eight, which we know is I think is pretty much maximum speed at the time for the Constitution class starships. Um, although I mean, it did it, they did get it to warp eleven. Uh, in by any other name but typically 
Uh, it was interesting that Kirk went straight to warp eight uh, during that battle sequence. Um, it's just a, an interesting bit of continuity for TAS that they actually went to that particular speed, which was uh, the maximum speed allowable by the engines there without uh, you know, blowing the ship up necessarily. Um, I'm I'm a bit of a ship person. I've I've always just, especially pre TNG, I've all I've kind of discounted most of the warp stuff because it's so inconsistent as far as you know what's mm. as fast as they can go. Like you said, they hit warp eleven, and that was before we found out that if you went warp eleven, you turn into a lizard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, or not even warp eleven. But uh, yeah, and and then there's warp thirteen later. But um, yeah, I I, I hadn't put two and two together i always like warp eight's one of those weird ones that every every once in a while like picard would say go warp eight and it's just, all right you know <laughs> pick a random speed but yeah uh, and a couple gasps yeah. like oh, warp eight I'm like we're gonna go warp four today for some you know why not uh yeah it's okay to go a little slower today <laughs> this yeah, mission's yeah, not yeah. as important you have to get away but not too fast with the not too quickly gas, so yeah <laughs> Uh, another ship note that we talked about before we started the episode is the um, the S2 graph unit, which is the Klingon equivalent of the warp drive, which gets name dropped in this episode. So um, we see the D7 battle cruiser and we find out that they don't use a warp drive and they use this graph unit, but we get no other real uh, explanation of it. Just Spock seems to know that that's the Klingon technology that they use. So... Um, I don't think that ever gets mentioned again. No, it's it's like that algae-based Xenolon again, where they're just making something up, I think. Yeah, they just kind of throw it out there. So it's sort of a TAS defining some, or trying to make its own Trek canon. I'm, I'm not even sure what the... it. If you go to Memory Alpha and look it up, it's actually spelled G-R-A-F. So for some reason, I if, when you hear them say it, I think it's I think of the word graph, like on graph paper or... Mm-hmm. Um, so it was interesting they chose to spell it like that. I wonder how they came up with that spelling. Maybe it's in the um, closed captioning or something. Oh, maybe. It's spelled yeah. that way. I'm not sure. But I know you mentioned that prior to the recording, Carl. Did you have any other thoughts on the G2 graph unit? No, I mean, it's it, it's just name dropped as, you know, but then they don't really do anything with it. And like you said, I don't think it ever comes up again. Um so just, you know, they like they like to name things, you know, when they can, I guess. But uh, you know, at, not much else to end, say about it. At the end of the day, it fits right in. It helps us justify things like black badges in Star Trek Discovery. Oh, there you go. There you go. Never yeah. get mentioned again. Um, yeah, MacGuffins. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Discovery, something that um, I think kind of goes hand in hand with this episode and Alicia I, I obviously it made me think of Elysium um, and I wanted to, to look that up and talk about it a little bit, um, which Elysium or the Elysian fields, and I'm just quoting Wikipedia here. So that's where it comes from. Conception of the afterlife that developed over time and was maintained by some Greek religious and philosophical sects and cults. Um, initially separate from the realm of Hades, admission was reserved for mortals related to the gods and other heroes. Later, it expanded to include those chosen by the gods, the righteous and the heroic, where they would remain after death to live a blessed and happy life, indulging in whatever employment they had enjoyed in life. Um, so once again, we have some Greek mythology, uh, which heavily plays in discovery, um, they, you know, the, we have an episode, Lethe, 
And uh, I just thought it was kind of nice that there's a tie-in there. I hadn't really considered that before, but with Discovery fresh on my brain, um, I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, and it it Mm kind of does fit the the, the pocket of time and the idyllic, peaceful society that they created – um, you know, in the in the face of not being able to escape that that pocket that they were in, they all of them banded together, even though they were enemies, or most of them were enemies, or at least of each other, or in smaller groups. And they kind of made peace with each other and created a peaceful, nonviolent society uh, in their purgatory. Mm-hmm. So very fitting. Yeah, it's it's neat because even like the Charon, which is the ship in the mirror universe um, of Discovery, is is related all to Hades and this Greek mythology. So obviously TAS came long before Discovery, but Discovery's made some other references to the animated series. And while this wasn't necessarily any kind of direct reference, um, it was a tie-in that I noticed and I, I found poignant in and of itself. Uh, Carl, do you have any uh, any thoughts you want to bring up really quick? I have a few more things, but uh, I want to throw it out to you guys. I mean, if we're talking from the beginning here, um, I thought it was a strange way of um, depicting this Delta Triangle, you know, from the get-go or over the captain's log where it looks like they're watching a fireworks display of some yeah. kind. <laughs> and then Kirk says something about how, you know, the mysterious disappearances of starships recorded since ancient times, which I'm not quite sure how that works either. Yeah, I was wondering about the, the ancient times, yeah, by the way. Let's whole, back up to that real quick. Yeah. Um, I, I'm assuming that when he says ancient times, he's not talking about human ancient times. Right. He's talking about ancient times, I guess, for some of these other races. I mean, they say – don't they make reference to something like thousands of years? Centuries. Yeah. Centuries. Yeah. Centuries old. Yeah. Centuries old ships that yeah. have been there. But that's really not ancient though, is it? Mm-mm. No. Um, well, and they said that there were, what, 123 races in Elysia, yeah. and some of them were over 1,000 years old. Mm-hmm. So probably that's what he's referring to. I mean, ancient may not be the right word, but... Yeah, and it's interesting there's 123 races, but not nearly even a small fraction of them are represented by the council. No. Well, Right. Yes, what but is... there are, what, 40 Klingon houses, and we haven't seen all the Klingons from those houses, so. True, true. I, I how many Gorn houses they have. I find it funny. Yeah. I just, it fits at the end of the day, like, it all just, it's just like Star Trek tradition. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anything else, Carl? Uh, at least from, from the beginning, that that's really, you know, something else that stuck out to me. Uh, I think we've covered pretty much the rest Okay, I thought, speaking of going from, back to the beginning of the episode, just looking through some of my notes, that there's a, a few things that had, that kind of stuck out to me, too, that uh, the, the parallels to the Bermuda Triangle are very interesting mm-hmm. in this one. I like how, uh, you know, if you, I mean, when I was younger, I remember the Bermuda Triangle was a big deal. I haven't heard much about it yeah. since yeah. then. It kind of has faded away, but that was one of the big, you know, mysteries of the Earth back when I was Mm -hmm. a kid, but uh, you always had stories about ships and airplanes and things that were flying around and are going through it and their instruments would malfunction. So there was a nice touch that the instruments all malfunctioned uh, when they were in that. But, you know, in, in, in true TOS style form, when they go through the, the crew members are experiencing that vertigo, but somehow magically Kirk and Spock don't. Kirk and Spock don't. (laughs) It's always that way. So, I mean, Spock, I could understand, but Kirk just never seems to be affected by those things. 
Well, I mean, there there are so many, not so many, but there are a few uh, unintentionally funny moments um, yeah. in this, either because of, I mean, it's it's an a relatively pr uh, primitive animation and, you know, the voiceovers and stuff. And my, my favorite moment we haven't gotten to yet, but like the way Sulu's like, can't focus. And then yeah. he just kind yeah. of pauses and then he falls over and no one really cares. <laughs> you know, it's just, <laughs> it's just these little things that I... I think that, you know, this is a, this is a really good example, I think, of where the 30 minute yeah. uh, runtime really is to the detriment of the show. Because I think there could have been a lot more interesting things done had it been a full episode of the original series. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I mean, there isn't a lot in here aside from maybe the council that would have been that cost prohibitive either. There are some other episodes that really they took advantage of the fact that it's animated. But I could really have seen this as a full hour TOS episode, I think, uh, you know, maybe in the mysterious fourth season or something. But uh, but I would I would have loved to seen some of the things stretched out a little bit like, you know, they they switch on the viewer and immediately there's the Klingon right there. And, you know, they, they kind of, you know, jump to the quote unquote, the good bits. But uh, I would have loved to seen a little more uh, development in some of these areas. Yeah, I agree. It would have given them a chance to break out the Gorn suit again. Yes. That thing was hanging in a closet somewhere. <laughs> For seasons two and three, never used it again. Um, actually, speaking of of funny dialogue moments, you brought up the Sulu one. One of one of the ones that made me kind of laugh and chuckle was uh, when Chorus says, "Prepare to open fire immediately." Yeah. Why do you have to prepare <laughs> if you're going to open fire immediately? What are you preparing for? <laughs> this just made me chuckle. It's kind of funny. James Doohan does a really funny Klingon voice. He really does. It's uh, it's very special, and it's it's weird because you're this is I think this is the first time you're seeing a Klingon who appeared in TOS. I mean, core mm -hmm. played by famously by John Colicos, and now you know we're seeing the same Klingon, but it's being voiced by James Doohan. He does that weird nasally "Oh, Captain Kirk" kind of <laughs> Klingon voice. It's one of the very few impressions that I can actually pull off. So thank can you, you for do the whole me. podcast in that voice? Oh, wow. I, mean, I think We'll try the next TAS one uh, in that <laughs> voice. It's not just the voice, it's the inflections, but I'll work on that. I'll work on that. But uh, yeah, I thought it was it was interesting to compare um, the way that, that Duin does the voice of Kor uh, with you know the original Kor, who was much more smooth and conniving. So I don't I don't necessarily know if Core's personality carried over as well into this episode. Uh, if you go back and watch um, Aaron Mercy, Duh. yeah, I'm getting I'm trying to think of all the Klingon episodes <laughs> of the original series. So we're already talking about Day of the Dove, but uh, yeah, Aaron of Mercy. So yeah, if you go back to Aaron of Mercy, I think it, it, there is a, a a bit of a difference between the writing of the core character there and the writing of the core character here. Yeah. So a little inconsistency, but again, probably part of the short format of the show. They really can't dive too much uh, into the, the characters themselves, but I thought it was really nice. This episode really does a lot continuity wise with TOS. And, mm -hmm. you know, I have to hand it to, to Joyce Perry for being so accurate uh, with her references to TOS. She obviously knew a lot about the original series uh, in order to carry over characters and alien races and, you know, create some new canon too. So uh, hats off. I wish she had written more of these. Well, and I wonder, I mean, how much of this she actually wrote that wasn't changed by other people. Eh, possible. 
possible. Well, I was kind of going by the fact that she pitched an idea to Roddenberry um, about Starfleet and the Klingons working together. It kind of made me feel as like she knew enough about Star Trek that maybe some of this stuff did come from her head. Yeah. I'm not I'm not doubting her abilities as a woman, being a woman myself. I just know that half the time these these ideas get pitched, you have a script that was issued um and then a, a final draft and and as we all know, they get edited, they get changed. I mean, Dorothy Fontana could have played a role in it. Mm-hmm. Um I didn't come mm-hmm. across much in my research about the actual writing, um the writing process and everything. But uh, don't mean to discredit her. It's just a, a curiosity of my own. Throwing out a, a plug, I'm, I'm still waiting. Uh, if I don't think he listens to the show, but Mark Cushman, still waiting for your fourth book that has information about the animated series in it. This, that could have uh, shed some light on the writing of this episode. So uh, I got to reach out to him and find out where that fourth book is. It's been yep. it's overdue. Let me say quickly, you know, one of the things that I, I thought was was pretty cool about this episode, and it was very a very Star Trek like concept, was something that Heather touched on briefly earlier, and that was the debate that the Elysians were briefly having about whether or not they should intervene and mm-hmm. stop the the Enterprise and the Koloth from escaping uh, because there was a potential for loss of life there. And there was a brief debate about the law has no mandate about whether or not they should intercede. But I thought that was a very Star Trek-like concept and almost a prime directive-like argument. And there's a, there's a lot that kind of can be said about that argument. And we've talked about prime directive stuff a lot on these shows before. But did you guys have any thoughts on on that? No, I just I I completely agree. I thought it was it was an interesting bit where you know they they lay down the law. They say you know you're in very again in typical star star trek fashion kind of like you know especially in like star trek 6 and what have you where they said you know the captains are responsible for the crew and if the crew misbehaves then we'll immobilize your ship for a century or something like that um i'm not quite sure how that works but um but then they said you know there's no we don't have a law that says you can't try to escape because nobody has um i don't know what they would have done if you know if one of the engines had gone haywire and they've you know, potentially destroy the ship or what have you. But, you know, thankfully we didn't get to that point uh, in the show. But uh, but no, it's it's definitely a a very, as you said, a prime directive like conversation where they're saying, you know, as long as you're behaving yourselves and not trying to hurt each other, we'll let you, you know, do what you want. So, yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a bit extreme that like if your people hurt each other, even if you don't know, <laughs> you will be yeah. held accountable. They call that out right? specifically, don't they? Yeah, yeah. No. I mean, that was a bit much, um, knowing that you can't control what everybody does at, at any given time. So I was kind of like that raised an eyebrow. But but yeah, no, like just like Carl said, I, I think that there's enough here that this could have been uh, an actual an actual live episode of Star Trek and that it would have been pretty interesting had that happened. Yeah, I agree. They, I'm sure if this was a full, you know, hour-long Star Trek episode, they could have explored some of these moral issues a, a bit more. I, I can just imagine this being a TOS episode, and they would spend a lot more time talking about or debating, uh, you know, whether or not they should intervene and uh, debating whether or not, you know, the laws apply to, you know, these new people or things of that nature. I think that that's a shame that this script couldn't have been uh, fleshed out more than mm-hmm. it was. 
Yeah. Well, and even the Orion woman, you know, she expresses an interest in leaving. And so Mm -hmm. you kind of wonder, like, what what happened now that they know how they can get out? Like, what happened to these people? Did they stay? Did they leave? Because if there were 123 races, who knows how many actual beings were there yeah so um i i guess i need to pick up the the little book the little like pocket books that they did for each of the episodes and like the book covers two episodes at a time because ian got me the one for the lorelei signal nice um and so that book expands on each of these stories and so i wonder if the book for this episode the the james blish series yes oh yeah the blish series yeah um, I can't believe that they don't actually reference it in this memory alpha unless I'm just totally like going right over it because they even talk about that this episode is similar to a gold key book. Um, issue 15, Museum at the End of Time. Yep. So I'm kind of surprised that they don't mention the other book, but that might be a good place to find an expanded story here. And I will find that at uh, the the Star Trek convention in Las Vegas. <laughs> Another plug for STLV. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I would have liked to have seen, um, and of course, if this was done back in the TOS days, they probably wouldn't have had much of an exploration of the ship graveyard. But if it was a more modern Trek series, of course, we probably would have seen a lot more of the ships. I was kind of squinting and trying to look in the background to see if there was anything that looked relatively familiar out there uh, and there was one ship that kind of looked a little like the botany bay but it probably wasn't yeah. <laughs> um there was one that looked like a, a mouse which was weird but uh, apparently doing some reading on this that a lot of the ships that appear in the background of the space graveyard were uh, prototype designs or storyboard type designs of ships that they were going to use in other tas episodes but there's some really weird designs out there mm-hmm. all right well you know what let's let's jump right into the sabotage. <laughs> the, sabotage. This, sabotage this episode includes uh the the infamous william shatner pronunciation of sabotage famously mispronouncing the word sabotage but it's funny because i think doesn't uh spock says it and then kirk says it in his own way <laughs> And he looks like right at the screen, basically. Like it's, it's him, like look, you know, straight on in his face. He's like sabotage. So yeah, it's it's like a meme in and of itself or something. Um, it's just such a notable thing, um, but kind of plays into what Carl said about this episode having so much humor. Um, and I think this was the the oddest version of Spock I've seen. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, that's that's what I was getting at with my yeah my my the one that makes me laugh every time I I get there. Um, going back to the sabotage for a second, I I have to wonder if there is any part of that in the choice of the Beastie Boys song in Star Trek <laughs> 09. That's a good uh, question. If, if if that's why they chose sab- the sabotage song for, <laughs> I, it's I, it probably possible. doesn't, but but it's just it's too good of a coincidence to completely you know dismiss but it'd be a great easter egg if it was it would be well i mean they're trekkies so or at least a few of them so i wouldn't i wouldn't pass it by them yeah no i wouldn't either i wouldn't either that would be that would be a panel question if i ever was able to get up on a panel i would ask that question but you know going back to spock i'm glad you guys brought up (laughs) spock and his odd behavior in this episode and i love the fact that we're seeing a different 
way of executing like a mini mind meld. Mm-hmm. So you see, all Spock kind of has to do is just touch you for a brief second, and he can he can grab some stuff out of your brain without you even knowing it. But I really love the shot of him putting his arms around the two <laughs> yes. Klingons. <laughs> yes, that was so cool. That was so great. And there's a there's there's also a, a Spock moment where he does the eyebrow raise, mm-hmm. the yeah. eyebrow raise. Yeah, nice my touch. favorite line from him um, was I think he went over to core somebody but he's like forgive me i was overcome by the moment goodbye yeah. goodbye <laughs> goodbye <laughs> and yeah. i mean even even bones is noticing that he's he's behaving a little differently yeah. um, can we talk about how little bones is in this episode like he yeah, just, really. he just shows up for that one moment and then i think at the end in the at the party but uh cuz he's cuz he's trying to dance with the klingon yeah he's there to be a curmudgeon <laughs> But yeah, I love that you brought that. I was going to bring up the uh, his presence in the bar scene, where he's he, he asks the Klingon woman to dance. I thought that was an interesting kind of. It's a throwaway moment, but I thought it was kind of interesting that that McCoy uh, would would approach the Klingon woman and ask her to dance, being the yeah. you know the curmudgeon on the ship. Like she didn't have to say yes. He did. Yeah, she did. And, and you know, to title the back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, you know. It, it's sort of like in Star Trek V at the end when Chekhov and Sulu are chasing after oh, right. uh, what's her name. Uh, but yeah, it's it's just a, it's just a weird moment. Yeah, awkward. Another thing that could have been fleshed out a little bit more if it was a full length uh, TOS episode. That whole sequence. I, I thought we were getting into another Trouble with Tribble style bar fight for a minute there, mm-hmm. but didn't didn't really pan out. But there was a really good shove. Poor, poor Bones yes. got shoved pretty well. He did, yeah. <laughs> but I guess that's what you get. Um, so do you guys have any other things that you want to bring up? Heather, any notes that you wanted to bring up? Uh, I think that we've mentioned just about everything that's in my notes. It's like Gorn, exclamation mark, is <laughs> one of my notes. Oh, I have that um, too. Same note. As is Purple Vest Klingons. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the Delta Triangle goes, I, I have to quickly shout out to our buddy Ian, um, the host, one of the hosts, along with you, Jeff, of the Drawing Trek, our mm-hmm. Golkey Comics show. He said, be sure to mention how the Delta Triangle was featured in the FASA RPG from the 80s. And Ian, I wish you were here because I know absolutely nothing about that RPG. Uh, thanks for enlightening me. So now people know that it came up again. And thank you for contributing to this episode, Ian. Yes. We miss you. <laughs> but he will be back. Ian will be back. But he will be returning to Drawing Trek in a few months. So keep your eyes open for that. Uh, anything else in your notes, Heather? No, that that was pretty much it. I mean, there it's like there was a lot in the episode, but at the same time, it wasn't really like a great episode. No. Um, so, like I said, despite there being a lot, by the fourth time I've watched it, I was kind of hmm. paying attention to other things, <laughs> uh, which yep. is kind of sad. But I like that there, you know, there were multiple women in this episode, mm-hmm. uh, and the women were nice to each other. And I really do believe that it passes the Bechdel Wallace test. Uh, I think I'd have to go back and rewatch it. I believe you're correct. I think you're right. Yeah. 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 Um, They're not specifically talking about a man. So uh, 
that that's a pretty cool thing. Um, I was going to ask you if you would explain that to people who may not know what it is, but you just did. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I won't go into the, the whole thing. I mean, you can Google it um, to find out the the whole definition. But it's basically a scene in which two women are talking about something other than a man. Uh, and so, uh, Star Trek in general, you'd be surprised. It actually doesn't do a great job, except I have to give a shout out, um, to Discovery for every episode past the Bechdel-Wallace test. Um, and that's a really big deal because some of the series barely, like barely had episodes where that happened. Uh, you'd be surprised. So very, very cool thing. Um, you can check out uh, Trekkie Feminist on Tumblr. Jara Hodge uh, what, watched all of Star Trek and cataloged which episodes passed and which did not. Uh, so, you know, it's just a, it's an important thing. Uh, and it does, you don't have to be a woman for you, it to be important to you. So <laughs> go and do that. Very cool. Uh, Carl, any other notes that you want to bring up? Um, I have a few things. Um, it's I, I have written down. Um, oh, it's the dilithium crystals again. Because um, they they you know as 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 per usual to to have a clock on things, the dilithium crystals are disintegrating and they have you know four days left of power or whatever it is. Uh, so that sets a you know deadline on things. Yeah. Well, you know what? There really quickly therein lies probably the, one of the, the the biggest unspoken tragedies of this episode so once they leave knowing that their dilithium crystals would have been depleted in four days those all of those other poor people are trapped in there yeah. now their dilithium crystals are done mm -hmm. <laughs> even if they wanted to execute the same escape that that the uh, kirk and the klingons did eh, ain't happening well i wonder if uh Zarius the Romulan, if his ship had still had, if they were using the artificial singularity back then, maybe uh -huh. that would be uh, something they could use. But uh, but yeah, they're but they didn't seem really like they wanted to go anywhere anyway. So yeah, they were pretty cool. Uh, yeah, um, I had written down the uh, again. I think this is this is kind of a casualty of the thirty minute runtime and the you know animation, but the the little red pill of death. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that, that that the Klingons hide in that little cabinet. Um, and then Spock and Scotty managed to find it pretty quickly enough. Like they have, oh, we have to go find the pill and or the 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 sabotage, and uh, they find it pretty quickly. And I also wrote because I can't avoid a pun. I wrote Deus Ex Magen in my notes, uh, yes. just because. The, I mean, again, like I think you know, if she had been a character that was there throughout the whole thing, that'd be great. But she pops up once, and then she shows up again to you know, oh no, there's a bomb on the Enterprise. Better find it and. That's how they. That's how they discover that there's the, the the set the, you know the little pill yeah. hidden somewhere. I, I love the fact that the Enterprise has garbage chutes that vent to space. Yes. I mean, you he if <laughs> there's got to be like an airlock system when you open that little door, it can't vent directly to space, or everyone would get well, sucked through that little hole. I I don't know what kind of house you grew up in, but my house when I was a kid was you know from the turn of the century and it had those little milk door. That oh. had like a double door thing on it. Mm -hmm. So that's that's what it reminded me of. Like, you know, you close the door on the outside, then you could open the door on the outside. But anyway, yeah. uh, it's got to be. And, yeah. I can, yeah. I can't see Starfleet approving something that would send no. trash out into space. No. Mm. Well, you need a bomb disposal uh, somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. happens frequently enough. Because I know that in TOS, we had an, an incident where they threw something, invented it into space, and blew up. I, I'm trying to remember what episode it was. 
but I thought it was a similar type of thing. It was a, wasn't it wasn't it a uh, a phaser that was set to overload? That yeah, was in Kirk's yes. quarters. Actually, that was in uh, Conscience of the King. Right. Yes. Yes. Just yeah. watched. Right, and they they throw it down a little chute in the wall, and it goes outside into space and blows up. Right. I'm not sure if it actually goes outside. Hmm. Uh, maybe I mean I don't know. It's sad. I just watched it. I should know specifically, but um, you hear it explode. Yeah, you get the camera shake too. Yeah. I had just yeah. assumed it exploded somewhere, like in the trash chute in the ship or wherever he threw it in the ship, where it wouldn't really damage anything. But maybe it went outside. They didn't show it go outside. So I have one other note that, um, and this is unrelated to Star Trek in a way, but um, the this the book and then the movie uh, 2010, which is the sequel to 2001: A Space Odyssey, kind of almost uses the same solution to a problem where they the in in that story the the americans and the russians uh combine their ships to uh basically thrust themselves away from a, a you know a calamity that's about to happen but i don't know if if arthur c clark was a star trek fan or i mean it's a fairly obvious uh kind of a story but you know it's a very similar thing where the two enemies are going to combine forces to save the day at the end of the day although there was no uh, sabotage in that story so or sabotage um, it's sabotage yes <laughs> uh so uh it, it just stuck out to me as a it's a it's a film that i tend to actually like and think is a little unjustly maligned in some ways but uh but yeah so that that stuck out to me a little bit you know I'm, i have not seen 2010 i'm gonna have to go watch that now so i guess that brings us to the end of our discussion on the episode we can go quickly around the table for uh, final impressions on this episode before we close the show. I'll say it's, uh, I think it's Heather's. It's not a really a strong episode of TAS, but I think for me, the uh, the inclusion of all the alien races really makes this significant for me. I, I enjoy watching it just to see the Gorn uh, with a, with a drink in his hand at the bar. <laughs> <laughs> so the Gorn's a regular guy, just <laughs> just like the rest of us. He likes to tie one on at the end of the workday. Um, that was really cool for me. Um, and, you know, it was a slow-moving episode. There were things that could have been fleshed out more uh, if we had a longer format. But uh, overall, not the best TAS, probably not the worst either. So I'm kind of somewhere in the middle on this one. But um, I'm going to have to give this um, an essential vote just for some of the continuity moments that we have here and some of the alien races being included and uh, the 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 graph drive in the Klingon ship that gets name dropped is pretty cool bit of technology, and of course the Bonaventure uh, being added into this episode kind of gives it a nice aspect. It's it's uh, something that you get something out of watching it, even though it's not a great episode. Uh, Heather, what are your final thoughts in the episode? I guess at the end of the day, I also would have to rate it as essential because of the same points that you made. Um, in addition to the point that I made about it passing the Bechdel test, because yay. Um, but yeah, it, uh, it was all right. Not my favorite, not, not my least favorite, I guess, but it's Star Trek. So I like it. Nice. And that, that's, yeah, I don't have anything profound to say. Um, it didn't blow my mind, but I appreciate what was there and I appreciated you know, them having the discussion of whether or not they could leave because anywhere else they would have been just like, Nope, you're not going anywhere. You're stuck here. You can't go. Um, so that, that, uh, that scene was nice. So yeah, those are my thoughts. Excellent. I, I love that you uh, mentioned that 
you know, it's Trek, so you love it. So that's a, yep. a cornerstone of the tricorder transmissions. You know, good Trek, bad Trek. We love it all because it's Star Trek. So it's like we spending time with old Trek. friends. Yep, right? all the Star Treks all the time. You got it. Uh, Carl Wonders, final thoughts. Uh, do you feel this is an essential episode of the animated series? Yeah, I, I would say it is. Um, if nothing for the, the connection to core and mm. and and the Clothos and the fact that that's, you know, I mean, core shows up again in later season or later shows. So if it had just been a generic Klingon, uh, you know, it might not be quite as yeah. important in, in as far as the overall story of, of everything. But um, and then, you know, you get the you get the, the council with all the different uh uh, alien races, as you mentioned, the Bon Adventure. I, th- I think there's enough in here that uh, will make it essential, even if the story itself is a little on the the mediocre side. Um, I will say that, like we mentioned before, you know, the fact that I think it would actually hold up as a T- TOS episode had it been stretched out and and maybe fleshed out a bit more. I think is has a lot uh, in its favor too. Uh, just there there are some in there that you could never see as a episode of. TOS, uh, even if you had the budget to do it. So this well, is like this a, is definitely one that's a good one, as far as that goes. Like a giant Spock. Yes, a <laughs> giant Spock too. <laughs> hey, one the Phylosians came from that episode. Yes. Come on. Yeah. Yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> They're actually kind of cool. And there's one of them in this episode. I love that they, they carried one forward mm-hmm. uh, into another TAS episode. Mm-hmm. But so we have three essential votes. That means that the time trap is an essential episode. Uh, as part of the Tricorder Transmissions catalog. So that's pretty cool. And so I guess we're closing up the episode now. And let's go around really quick and get everybody's social media details if you want to talk Trek with us. Uh, Carl Wonders, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Listening to Film, which is my uh, on and again, off again uh, blog at listeningtofilm.net. Um, I'm also hanging around on Facebook every once in a while in the unofficial uh Las Vegas group uh, there, so you might be able to catch me there as well. Very cool. Heather Barker, where can we find you? So, yeah, you and I, Jeff, admin, the unofficial Star Trek Las yes. Vegas face- convention Facebook group. God, I how many times have I said it and I still get it wrong half the time? It's a mouthful, um, but that is our uh, STLV family, and so we welcome everyone to come join there. And then... Off uh, an offshoot from that community, my podcast Shore Leave, which is at Shore Leave, and then um, Disco Trek, which is at Disco underscore Trek, and then my personal handle is LLA Posper, which is LLAPAWSPER uh, on Twitter. So, where can we find you, Jeff? Uh, I am Warp Factor Jeff on Twitter, and you can find our show at Tricorder Show on Twitter and the Tricorder Transmissions dot com and we'd love to hear from you and talk back about the animated series and any of our other shows so feel free to drop us a line we'd love to hear from you and that brings us to the end of episode 126 of the original mission and we'll see you here in hopefully about another month with another episode of the animated series (laughs) 